Well, welcome back, everyone, to Seminary Unboxed. I'm Dr. Matt Ayers, uh, the host of Seminary Unboxed, and of course, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. And today I have Dr. Hans Borsma uh, with us as our guest. I'm going to introduce him here really quickly. Uh, Dr. Borsma, and I am saying that right. Is that correct? You okay. are. Great. Thank you. <laughs> uh, serves in the St. Benedict Servants of Christ Chair in Ascetical Theology at Nashita House in Wisconsin, a community of formation marked by the fullness of Anglican faith and practice, Benedictine spirituality, and classical Christian thought and teaching. Um, uh, in addition to that, before coming to Nash, am I pronouncing that right? Nashita? You're not Nashita. this one, unfortunately. Nashota. Nashota. Okay. Nashota. Uh, before coming to Neshota House in 2019, he taught for 14 years at Regent College in Vancouver, that's in British Columbia, Canada, and for six years at Trinity Western University in Langley, British Columbia. He also served several years as a pastor in a Reformed church. He grew up in the Netherlands and has been in Canada since the year of my birth, 1983. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Borsma's interests range across a variety of areas, including patristic theology, 20th century Catholic thought, and spiritual interpretation of scripture. And he has a website where you can find out more about him and read more about his works at hansborsma.org. That's H-A-N-S-B-O-E-R-S-M-A.org. And uh, I've invited uh, Dr. Borsma on today to talk about his book uh, that's titled Five Things Theologians Wish biblical scholars news. So before getting into the topic of that book, let me just say, uh, welcome. It's great to have you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Matt. It's a joy to be with you, and um, I look forward to a great conversation with you. Yes. And, and, you know, what's interesting is, uh, you, you know, your um, affiliation and membership with and involvement with the Anglican Church is here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Uh, we are very much, uh, um, let's say, aligned, you know, there's all these offshoot American holiness theology things that happened after Wesley, but we align ourselves with Wesley and his teaching who didn't want to start a movement separate from right. the Anglicans. And so there is very much, a, a, at least uh, I can say for the school, a kindred spirit there with our Anglican brothers and friends. And in fact, we have quite a few Anglican students and graduates. A lot of our students come here as like Methodists. And then uh, we've had faculty here who, have, uh, who are deeply sacramental in their theology and the influence of our faculty and our students. A lot of them graduate and then join the Anglican church. And some have even become Eastern Orthodox because of the, the high sacramental theology that we have Interesting. at West, Wesley Biblical. So, um, so let me say thank you for your work. It's, it's quite an array of, of content that you put out. Very impressive. Uh, but Today, we're talking about five things theologians wish biblical scholars knew. <laughs> so tell us, yes. um, why, why did you write the book? Um, I've for a long time actually been interested in the relationship between what's often called theology on the one hand and biblical studies on the other hand. Um, mostly, I became interested in it in retrospect. Um, through the reading of a little essay by a 20th century Catholic theologian by the name of Henri de Lubac. Um, he, uh, he, he was a patristic scholar. De Lubac was a patristic scholar and um, very interested in allegorizing the way that the early church allegorized the scriptures. I grew up in the Reformed tradition, and when I, when I thought of allegorizing, I thought, well, that is, um, that is arbitrary imposition of a totally different meaning onto the biblical text, and one cannot possibly justify it. Um, until I read de Lubac, when I read his little, little essay, I think it was called um, Allegory and, and um, Topology or something like that. When I, when I read it, I thought, 
oh, I'm going to have to pay more attention to this than I have. Um, that set me off on a journey, that, that, that first reading, set me off on a journey uh, reading the Church Fathers in, in greater detail. And, and as, I, as I became more enmeshed in the theology and in the biblical interpretation of the Fathers, um, I saw there that they, that they read scripture not in a straightforwardly, strictly historical manner, um, but that there are a variety of levels of reading scripture and that they look for a variety of meanings and that they accept a multiplicity of meanings. All this, what we might consider free-floating uh, engagement with scripture um, was, was really for them a way of, of saying the biblical text um, is not about simply about, about um, historical historical meanings, not simply about what the author initially, the human author initially uh, had in mind, but it really is a, a divinely intended book. The scriptures are really a, a divinely intended book, um, which is to say that they, that they reveal God to us, God in Christ. And the church fathers typically, therefore, in a variety of different ways, look for how God in Christ comes to the fore within the divine scriptures. And, and once you start doing that, you, 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 you end up with almost a clash, a clash between this approach and what, what for quite, quite, a, uh, quite a long time now has been a typical approach within biblical studies, namely to look for historical authorial intent of, of, of the text. Um, so uh, in a variety of ways, I've, I've, I've been busy with this, with this issue. And when the editor of, of IVP um, uh, came to me and said, look, we want to do two books, uh, one by Scott McKnight uh, entitled um, Five Things Biblical Scholars Wish Theologians Knew, and another one that you might write, uh, Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew, I immediately thought, this is a great idea. <laughs> Uh, so, so I signed on. Uh, unfortunately, the title, a very catchy title, isn't mine. Um, but, but I think I think it's it's a great title and a, and a great project. And I think it's an important project in in today's uh, today's discussion about biblical and theological studies. Wonderful, wonderful. And and uh, I will add, I don't know, adds the right words, supplement uh, that, you know, I, as I shared with you before, even we began here this morning or this afternoon that, you know, my studies are my formal studies is in Old Testament. And, uh, you know, I did the PhD in Hebrew linguistics and poetry, and I've been very much exposed to the world of biblical scholars. That was the school I was trained in. And, um, and it wasn't until I came back to Wesley Biblical Seminary as the president, and I really became uh, closer, let's say, to the systematic theology, historical theology, and, and even uh, ph philosophical studies uh, faculty here at WBS that I began to really understand how big of a void there was in my own hermeneutical frame in terms of reading the Old Testament as Christian scripture and the importance of that. And so I have come to a place where I have really, when I saw the title of the book, I was enthused because I wish I almost, I wish I would have had it when I was a, a student. Um, how, so so let's jump into you know the five things. So the first thing is uh, no Christ, no Scripture, and that's N O right, not K N O W. So <laughs> yes, uh, yes. there is. If I could rephrase that, if there is no Christ, there is no Scripture. You wish that theologian or that biblical scholars understood this. So tell us more about this. No Christ, no Scripture. Yes. Um, 
the scriptures are all about Christ. Um, from A to Z, beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, the whole thing, it's all about Christ. Um, so if you don't have Christ, you don't have the scriptures that are about him. In a very sort of basic, at a very sort of basic level, um, since the since the Holy Scriptures revealed to us uh, God in Jesus Christ, uh, the inescapable conclusion it seems to me must be that if you don't have Christ, you don't have Scripture. So the first, the title of the first chapter must be, I think, "No Christ, No Scripture." And to me, the the reason why that is first is is that God has. Finally, Hebrews 1 verse 1, right? God has finally uh, revealed himself um, in Jesus Christ, in, in, yep. in, in his son. And, and now that God has revealed himself in his son, nothing remains the same. And that to me is key. Nothing remains the same. Nothing that came before and nothing that follows. Everything is now typologically related to the archetype Jesus Christ. And that means that, that the Old Testament as typologically um, geared toward Christ and must be read as such because God has set as a standard. He has set as a norm, namely Jesus Christ himself. The Logos embodied, as Maximus Confessor would put it, embodied in, his son, in, 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 in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, now that he's become embodied, now that the Son, the Logos, the Word has become embodied in the Son or in Jesus Christ, um, everything preceding that, the entire Old Testament, um, reveals him as such, reveals, reveals Jesus to be the Son of God. And so we look in the Old Testament, we, as it were, dig up uh, the ground of the Old Testament. Um, the church fathers would often use this, this picture from Matthew. 1342, I think it is, um, uh, this parable of Jesus um, that where, where Jesus speaks of digging and digging up um, the ground um, and for, for the sake of, of finding the, the one thing that matters, the treasure. And, and the one thing that matters, as Irene has already said in the 180s, the one thing that matters is Christ. It's not just that the Old Testament looks forward to Christ. As, as, as a, by way of historical development, although that's true, although that's true, but, but, but it's, it's more than that. It's that the Old Testament already contains, already contains the, deep, the mystery itself. There's a deeper level of meaning, and to find that deeper level of meaning, you need to dig. That's why the, what the Church Fathers so often speak of, use, use the Greek verb kruptain, uh, to, to hide. Um, there's something hidden within the old that is now revealed in God's own Son becoming incarnate in the flesh. And, and, and that revelation of Jesus Christ is what we look for primarily, I think, when we read the Old Testament. So it has to come first. First chapter has to be if, if, when it comes to theological interpretation. And if, there are five, if, we're, if we're talking five things, oh, well, then the first thing's got to be no Christ, no Scripture. 
Um, do you have, and I hope this isn't putting on the spot, do you have an example of where you've seen, um, let's say, Old Testament scholars, Hebrew Bible scholars, uh, where they have disappointed on this front? And I, I have a few in mind, a few examples that I could even point to as an Old Testament guy, where say, no, you've missed it there. That's a mistake to read that that way, yeah. or you haven't dug deep enough. Do you have a, a book, chapter, verse, or a segment that you could point us to, to give us an example? Yes, I, I could. I mean, let me first say, before I give you an example, let me first say um, that typically, because I've discussed these issues often with biblical scholar friends, um, and, and although there are exceptions, uh, yourself obviously being a, being a keen example, but, but often my, my biblical scholar friends, um, and typically actually my biblical scholar friends, disagree with my approach because they've been trained historically. They've been trained as historians. And, and more often than not, they call themselves historians rather than theologians. Right, they're, they're philologists, they're historians. They're right. even at, at best literary critics, you know, looking at the shape and form of, of literature and ancient right. Eastern parallel. Yeah, right. So if, if that's what, what you do as a, as, as a scholar of the quote unquote Hebrew scriptures, if, if that's what you do, then then, to look for Christ in the scriptures as a deeper presence or something like that, uh, to talk about digging up the treasure, namely Christ, is in itself already mistaken. So wherever you may find Christ, the response would be, that's, that's interesting That's isogesis, speculation. they would say. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. It's isogesis. Um, and that's precisely what was wrong with patristic exegesis. It's, it's, it's an arbitrary imposition of an alien meaning onto authorial intent cannot be done, may not be done. Now, so, so, so I think wherever you were to do this, namely to look for Christ in the scriptures in the Old Testament, uh, you would invariably, in every instance almost, uh, have, have many Old Testament scholars disagreeing with you. To give you an obvious example then, uh, Proverbs, Proverbs 8 um, speaks of, 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 of wisdom. Um, Proverbs 3 speaks of the tree of life. Um, in, in both of these instances, uh, the church fathers see references to Jesus Christ, the, the tree of life being a reference to wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 8 speaking of, of, of um, God begetting, creating wisdom uh, before, before, time, before the ages. Forget exactly the terminology there. Um, now, what, what, what the church fathers do is they say wisdom. They, they work a lot with, with, um, uh, the, the, with, with words, words are very important to the church fathers. The words of the, of, the, of, of the scriptures are very important to them. So when they read the word wisdom, they cannot but think back, say, for example, to Colossians 1 and think of Jesus Christ as the wisdom of God. Um, so when they read about wisdom, um, being, God's, being God's creature, being begotten of God, um, they, they immediately think Christology. And they immediately think this must be a reference one way or another um, to the Son of God, which in turn, uh, we, won't, we don't necessarily need to get into that now, but which in turn led to a whole debate between Arians and, and, and Nicene theologians about whether this wisdom was created or uncreated and whether Christ therefore as the son of God was created or uncreated. Um, 
But both the Arians, interestingly, and, and the Nicene theologians, across the board, uh, both the Orthodox and, and the heterodox, they all agree the wisdom of God was a reference to Jesus Christ. Um, and it's only in modernity um, that that has become um, far more, that that linkage between wisdom and Christ has become far more suspect and, and, and tenuous. Um, it's difficult when you're looking for authorial intent, primarily, perhaps only, when you're looking for authorial intent, it's difficult to see in Proverbs 8 a reference to Jesus Christ. And the result is when you preach Proverbs 8, because the scriptures are for preaching, when you preach Proverbs 8, um, you're going to get some general rabbinic wisdom about or insight about how, how we need to live lives wisely and so on. But what you do not get as a result of this kind of exegesis is a sermon that preaches squarely the wisdom as revealed in Jesus Christ being a revelation of God himself. Preaching needs to be about Christ. And you don't get that when you when you read Proverbs 8 in a strictly historical manner. Yeah, so wonderful. And one thing that that I try to point out in the same spirit of like historical empirical data, which is, of course, like an understood thing across disciplines, especially in the academy, is that, you know, the, in response to the question, well, on what basis should I read uh, past the what the original authorial intent? Well, I always say on the basis of the resurrection, in the sense right. that Jesus said, you know, John 546, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So in other words, the Torah is about me. And so, okay, so, well, why should I believe what Jesus is saying? How is he, why, what makes him a reliable source to say that the Torah is about me? He rose from the dead after three days. And that, that, that vindicates him as an authoritative one to provide for us a hermeneutical frame that works. And yeah. so, uh, and, and beyond that, something that I uh, reiterate often is that the scriptures are for the church. You know, uh, the letter to the Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus yeah. uh, in Revelation, the seven letters to the churches. It's written for the servants of God. Um, the, the scriptures, Old and New Testament alike, is the word of God for the church inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit not only inspires the writing of the text, but also the reading of the text. And we know that the function of one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. And so if we're reading the text the way it's intended to be read with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the reader's end, and that Holy Spirit is always pointing to Jesus, then he, we have to have a Christocentric reading if, if the Holy Spirit's the agent, agent of interpretation. And um, so um, a, an example that I that I think of, there's a couple immediately, because I've, I've made this mistake myself as a young scholar saying, you know, well, let us make man in our image. Christians would say, well, that's Trinitarian language where from an ancient Near Eastern worldview of the original audience and, and uh, you know, the, the ancient Near Eastern parallel text of the Enuma Elish that the Trinity is not in the mind of the Old Testament period the end whatsoever. This is a monotheistic polemic against polytheism and Trinitarianism would not be in the mind of whoever penned Genesis, you know, the human author. And that what's in mind probably is, you know, the divine council, which would have been understood the myriads and myriads of supernatural beings around God's throne. And Elohim is the supreme L over all other, you know, gods and deities. And then I've really 
dialed that back. I don't say those sorts of things anymore that just because it wasn't in the mind, that's super imposition on the text that this is Trinitarian language. Why not? Why not Trinitarian language? Especially if the New Testament and the church fathers invite us to read it that way. Um, so that's that's one. Um, another one that I think of is um, even Exodus 3.14, um, uh, go and tell them you know, that my name is I am who I am. And then we have Jesus, of course, in John 8.58, before Abraham was I am. And so there's obviously something Christological happening yes. there in Exodus 3.14. Um, and then, of course, even in, in the book of Revelation, I'm mentioning Revelation a lot because I'm studying it right now. Uh, but Jesus is presented as the Alpha and Omega, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, you know, and this is probably a teleporting in of Exodus 3.14. And so I see it all as an Old Testament guy. My last example is the Psalms. <laughs> so, so the yeah. Psalms were read in a future predictive manner pointing to the coming of the anticipated ideal Davidic king, the Messiah, and the establishment of the ideal Zion. And this is every, you know, the Psalms is the number one quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And every single time it's quoted, it's quoted in a future predictive way pointing to Jesus. And so that gives us a model to say, read the Psalms Christocentrically. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Well, who is, it's Ish in Hebrew. Who is that man? Well, it's, it's any, any person. Any, any, well, Psalm 2, God has chosen his anointed one, his Mashiach, his king to put on his throne. He said, you are my son. Oh, well, the, the ish of Psalm 1, the man is this anointed one. Well, who is that anointed one? Psalm 3, Psalm of David. David is that anointed one. But then, of course, Psalm 89, the close of book 3, you have, well, what's going to happen to the anticipating? So the whole movement of the book of Psalms is pointing towards the Christ from the very first verse. Ashrei ha'ish, blessed is the man. Who is that man? Jesus is that man now yeah. you're not going to get that from a standard old testament scholar right but that's how you get I it think. from augustine you get it from augustine he begins his his commentary on the psalms very first very first at the beginning he asks the same question you just asked who is the man and he immediately says he's jesus christ he's you know, it's the guy pro, it's prosopological exodus they're looking for the prosopon who is the person they're asking who is the person? constantly asking that question who is the prosopon who is the person what jesus so see, no Jesus, no you. scripture. Uh -uh. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And, wonderful. and you point to two other, in, in your comments, you point to two other chapters already. You're saying it's read within the church. Um, if, if you're looking strictly for authorial intent, the question immediately comes up, but why these books? Um, why these 66? Like, what's so special about them? Well, they're read within the church. That is to say... If you're in the academy, I often, I often, when I, when, you know, when I go to the American Academy of Religion, Society of Biblical Literature meetings, uh, things like that, I often sit there with, with, with a thought in my mind, but why are you actually interested in this text? Why are you studying this text in the first place? It's sitting Isn't, on the branch of the tradition of the church. It's sitting on the branch of the tradition of the church, and you're not realizing you're trying to cut it off. <laughs> and that's the whole, right? So when people say, well, sola scriptura, let's not talk about tradition. I said, that's not what sola scriptura means. It means scripture stands alone in a unique category by itself 
apart yeah. from the ecumenical creeds and councils. It doesn't mean the rest are illegitimate. It means it's no. in a unique category. If you cut off tradition, you cut off the branch that scripture is Absolutely. sitting on. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the second one that you just mentioned in your earlier comments is, is providence. Uh, the spirit who inspired the scriptures you mentioned is, is also the spirit who guides us in our reading of the scriptures. That is to say, the biblical text functions providentially within God's economy to lead us to salvation, to bring us to, back to him. Um, and if that's what the purpose, what the aim of the scriptures is, if that is how God has designed them, as it were, um, then surely we are to read them Christologically. Yeah. Because Christ and is the one who takes us, takes us to God. And help me with this statement. Um, I often say, I say often, I have said on occasion uh, that we should be very cautious to looking to non-believers to tell us whether that's non-confessing uh, academics, scholars, Old Testament, New Testament, to tell us what the text means. Right. Because if the, you know, I believe in the doctrine of the clarity of the text, the clarity of scripture, right? There's simplicity of scripture that the message of the text is clear for those who read it with the help of the Holy Spirit seeking to love and obey God. So we need to be cautious about looking to those who don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to tell us what the text means. I am more than happy to look to a historian, a philologist, a non-confessional believer, whatever, not that those are synonymous. You can certainly be a confessional historian, philologist. I'm happy to look to one of those to tell me what the text says, but not what the text means. And I think right. those are two very different things. Yes, um, they are two different things. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they are two different things. Um, the text is to be read with the same mind with which it has been written. And that is to say the mind of God. Um, the, the church fathers, I've, I've done some work on St. Gregory of Nyssa and, and, and Nyssen, uh, and he's not alone in this, but, but Nyssen especially often talks about how it is that virtue um, equips us to better read scripture. Uh, in, in, in other words, it's not just that when you, when you read the Bible and you immerse yourselves in, yourself in the scriptures and that you hopefully become a better person, more virtuous person perhaps, a more ho a holier person, but but holiness is also a prerequisite for a good reading of scripture. Um, you need to be a certain kind of person if you if you want to read the scriptures well. Um, not all all readers of scripture have the same same interpretive abilities, and and that's not just a matter of scholarship. It's not just a matter of intellectual prowess. It has everything to do with what kind of a person you are. And that means primarily a person of the tradition and a person of the church. You need to be, you need to be as, as Origen called it, a ver ecclesiasticus, an ecclesial person, shaped in everything that you are, shaped by the church, shaped by Jesus Christ. And to the extent that you are shaped by Jesus Christ, you'll be a good reader of scripture. You need to love God to find love in the scriptures. And and I would go back to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. That's that's virtue. Right. That's piety. But who delights in the law of the Lord, he meditates on it day right. and night. And then Psalm 2 answers, just as Psalm 2 answers the question, who is this blessed one? It also answers the question, who are the wicked? Well, it's those, the, the, the kings of the earth who conspire against the Lord and his anointed. And, uh, you know, 
you mentioned Nisa. I'm, uh, I love uh, the Cappadocian Fathers. So there's a book by Christopher Beeley called Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, one of the Cappadocians, on the Trinity and the knowledge of God. And then the subtitle is a quote from Nazianzus that is, in your light, we shall see light, right? right. So this, this principle of virtue not only applies to right interpretation of scripture, but also right thinking about God. So theologians, right? And so God does not just reveal information about himself. He reveals himself to be related to, and mm-hmm. we can only see him and understand him in that light of intimacy, of virtue and holiness and drawing close to him. He reveals Absolutely. himself, yeah, to be related to. So uh, it's uh, great stuff. I, I want to because yeah. of that, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Because of that, if, if, that is, if that is indeed the case, then you cannot possibly restrict yourself to what you call simply reading the text as if it were just a matter of, well, as long as you have clarity, perspicuity of scripture, as long as you have clarity uh, about what the text meant to the author or what it meant in, in its historical context. No, you do in fact have to look at deeper levels of meaning, such as the Christological, the moral, the eschatological, uh, for they all impinge on, 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 on the greater depth of, of, of the scriptures um, as you come to know them in your walk with God um, and in your walk with God along with the other saints in the church. Well, um, he, he chooses to whom he wishes to reveal himself, right? Yes, right. And, you know, so I'm, I'm curious then, Hans, I want to, if I, if I may, uh, touch on these. So we, we've touched on no Christ, no scripture. We've touched a bit on providence in scripture. Um, we've touched on church in scripture. And so we're talking about virtue and piety. Is that where no Plato, no scripture comes in? I'm curious. And then the other one we haven't touched on is no heaven. And you just right. kind of in passing mentioned eschatology. So uh, what do you mean by no Plato? No, that, that that's a little bit what does he mean? You know, I understand to a lot of people. Well, it is because Plato was, you know, he believed that, well, he believed things that Christians don't believe, you know, that matter and material are eternal and, and that, um, you know, the physical is bad leading to Gnosticism. So why, why is Plato for our listeners and for me, why is Plato a crucial figure for, um, for biblical scholars to interpret the scriptures correctly? Yes. Um, Plato, the, the, the second chapter and I knew that when I when I was writing the book that it was going to be that. I realized um, the the the, Pla- the Plato chapter is probably the most obnoxious one, um, certainly the most controversial <laughs> one. Obnoxious. <laughs> yeah, because because what it what it basically says is is that you need a dose of 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 pagan philosophy, right? You need a dose of pagan philosophy to read the scriptures well, and that that seems like a strange statement to make when you, at least when you started out. Now let me let me begin by prefacing um, that the title of that second chapter, "No Plato, No Scripture," um, stands in a different category for me than the first chapter, the title of the first chapter, "No Christ, No Scripture," and I make that point emphatically when I when I set out chapter two. Um, we're talking two quite different categories here. To say no Plato, no scripture is, 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 is you should not make that statement in the same way that you make the statement, no Christ, no scripture. It's not quite as dogmatic. It's know. not as dogmatic. It's not dogmatic at all in some sense. Uh, in an important sense, it's, it's, it's uh, strictly uh, philosophical. It's not dogmatic. Um, and, and many people have never heard of Plato. 
can read scripture very well, um, precisely because they've been they've grown up in the church. Um, they read the scriptures Christologically uh, along with uh, fellow believers. So so one can read the scriptures well without knowing anything of or by or about Plato. The reason why I nonetheless already in the second chapter talk about no Plato, no scripture, um, is that what what a certain what certain elements of Plato's philosophy do is they 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 give us a metaphysical scaffolding, as it were, a metaphysical scaffolding, a framework um, that sets up certain boundaries in terms of the interpretation of scripture. In the at the beginning of the chapter, somewhere I talk about Urplatonism. It's not my own term, it's Lloyd Gerson's term, but Urplatonism. Um, it, it, or you could also call it basic Platonism. You, you, were, you observed already in your, in your question that there are elements in Platonic philosophy that are clearly problematic. And I think the fathers realized that. They were keenly aware of that. Nonetheless, um, Christian Platonism put a big stamp on how the church came to read scripture and therefore also on how the church came to articulate uh, Christian theology. Why is that? Well, it's because of these, these elements. There are five that I articulate in the book. Because of these elements um, that you might you might call basic Platonism or Urplatonism, um, what what Platonism in particular does is it it sets up a boundary or it it's, it says no to certain things such as materialism. Uh -huh. um, it it says no to a purely mechanical view of the universe. So it fights um, against the attempt to demythologize scripture by biblical scholars. Yes, you could put it that way. You could put it that <laughs> way. Um, what what it does most importantly for me is um, it's a no to the modern attempt to reduce the created order um, to atomized objects, separate, distinct from one another, uh, without any commonality. In in today's nominalist universe, to throw out a philosophical term for a second, in, in today's nominalist universe. Um, we construct names, nomina, nominalism. We construct names and, and thereby we impose subjectively order on the world around us. For Plato, that was a no-no. To, to find the meaning of things, including of the created order, um, you have to dig the treasure. You have yep. to- It's referential. It. It's not Discovered. the actual thing, right? Yeah. It's referential. You have to, there's something real that's already there, and your job is to find it, to discover it, not to impose it. Which, of uh, course, is set against Aristotle's, right? Right, right. So, so Christian Platonism, um, and there, there's a couple of other, other elements that we don't need to get into now in terms of core Platonism, but, but what, what that does, in particular, that, that referential element that you're talking about, or the realist element, as it is often called, um, what that does uh, is it enters into the bloodstream of dogmatic theology. For example, in connection with Christology, Christ is the new man, the second Adam for Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Romans 5, 12. All over the place, yeah. And, and of course, to be en Christo, in Christ, um, assumes this indeed, as you put it, all over the place. So if he's the new man, uh, what Christian Platonism does is it says, how metaphysically um, can, we, can we allow for this? 
Um, well, you cannot do that uh, in a subjectivist epistemology, in a nominalist epistemology. What you need for that is a certain kind of realism. Now, that doesn't mean that you should impose an alien, for example, platonic philosophy or metaphysic onto the scriptures. That'd be devastating to my mind um, because you would in, import all sorts of elements from Platonism that you might not want to import. It's just that contemporary biblical scholarship often objects to Platonism precisely because they have bought into a nominalist metaphysic and reduce interpretation to what we empirically um, can 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 um, extract, verify, verify. Yeah. and um, verify um, is not in the right word too. It's like empirically, what's even possible or provable? Yeah, right. Like a, a naturalized reading of the 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 ten plagues of Egypt, for example. Well, we can begin yes. to scientifically and naturally explain the cause yes. of those things, or the Red Sea splitting. Well, it probably wasn't the Red Sea; it was the Reed Sea, <laughs> and there were certain times of year in which they were blocked. You know. Why not a miracle? We have to affirm that metaphysics is a real thing. It's kind of like yeah. the, the <laughs> taking, I think with the enlightenment, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, we need to go back to the, the dark ages of affirming metaphysical and, and, and miracles. I begin the chapter, no Plato, no scripture. I begin it by saying, um, by making a plea for metaphysics and saying, look, we all do metaphysics. We're all engaged in it. The question is, what kind of metaphysics? If it's not Platonism, perhaps, what is it? You reject Platonism? Great, fine. What would you like exactly? Yep. <laughs> because it's not as, yep. as though you're just having this blank slate and, and, and read without any sort of glasses on. Well, one, um, thing that, one thing that I point out to people especially within, you know, the, the context of scholarship in the academy, especially, um, let's say, uh, in a confessional context where you have people trying to bridge this gap with being a respected researcher in the secular world, yet a confessional scholar. I find that there are a lot of semi-Boltmanians out there in the sense that it's like, well, you know, I don't want to affirm that the numbers could possibly be historically accurate with with, with regard to the Exodus. That was more of a, a myth story. What's probably true to history is that there was a gradual immigration into Canaan and people who identified themselves together as Semites. It's like, well, wait, just pause for a second. Fellow, fellow confessional scholar, do you affirm virgin a virgin birth and a bodily resurrection? Do you affirm that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man? Then what is keeping you from affirming some of the other miraculous things in scripture? Right. Because if, if you have a hesitancy to affirm the miraculous, then you're much deeper trouble than just having a hard time with the idea of X amount of people, hundreds of thousands of people crossing on dry ground under the Red Sea, you know? So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. am I wrong there? Tell me. No, you're not, you're not wrong whatsoever. <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. Um, it, it, um, what, what it boils down to, on, on, my, on my understanding, is a lapse in our ability to trust in divine providence. We no uh, longer recognize um, that the scriptures um, are, are an integral aspect of God's providential ordering of the universe. And that it is, it is organized in such a way, it is divinely, divinely given in such a way that, that everything in it leads us to salvation. And 
um, when we when we instead strip it in Bultmanian fashion to make it accommodate our notions of what is possible, what is not possible, um, we've we've occluded the horizon, the divine horizon that that made these scriptures possible. Um, so yeah, no, I don't think you you're, you're wrong. Um, there are certain things that because we've 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 separated nature and the supernatural, heaven and earth, um, we've we've basically crawled into our own little cave um, and and precluded certain things as impossible because we don't really recognize that God acts in this world. And yeah, there's there's just a desperate attempt to demythologize scripture. And you know, one of the classic examples of this is Isaiah authorship, the authorship of Isaiah, right? And so I don't have I don't have any problem saying that well i do have a little bit of problem but let, let, let's say i don't i wouldn't have a problem saying that there's multiple authors behind the book of isaiah mm -hmm. the, the problem i have is when people say it must be multiple authors because he says the name cyrus and that's right. impossible for him to have so i believe in clairvoyance now right, right? If, if i say that this was an eighth century prophet that knew the name cyrus in two verses chapters 44 chapters 45 um so you know th there's a big issue if you say well it's not possible because he couldn't have known that name from someone who lived a couple hundred years after he lived. But wait, the content of his very oracle is that God can predict the future. And so um, now the issue that I take up with, you know, multiple authorship of Isaiah is a necessity. The only problem I have with saying, okay, there's multiple authors is that the book nowhere invites us to read it as having multiple authors. So Isaiah 1.1 says it's Isaiah. Isaiah 2.1 says it's Isaiah. And it seems as if everything that follows flows from that introduction. So again, I don't want to get in the weeds to multiple authorship of Isaiah, but this whole demythologizing worldview issue uh, is to me what's ultimately behind um, this whole did one person write the the book of Isaiah. Nonetheless, moving forward, I got we got one more I want to hear you talk about, and I'm really curious about this one because I'm teaching Revelation now. No heaven, no scripture, eschatology. Where does this come into the picture? Uh, it comes into the picture in connection with teleology, uh, telos, aim, purpose. Um, what's the aim of our reading of scripture? Well, the aim is heaven, um, and, and basically the chapter is a bit of a reaction uh, against um, our emphasis today on social justice. Uh, we want to use scripture to make the world a better place. Interesting. And, and, and really the aim of the scriptures is not to make the world a better place. The aim of the scriptures is to bring us to heaven, to bring us to God, to see right. God face to face. The right. entire tradition speaks of the beatific vision um, seeing God face to face as the purpose of our lives, because um, we're made for happiness. God is happiness, according to the tradition. We are made for that happiness, uh, created for that happiness. And if you set your sights too low, as C.S. Lewis would put it, if you set your sights too low, this worldly things, making the world a better place, pleasure, whatever it may be, fame, riches, wealth, who knows what. If you set your sights too low, um, you're, you're, you're missing the ultimate purpose of why God gives us the scriptures. Again, we need to ask what the Bible is. You keep talking, or at least 
implicitly talking about uh, the, can the canonical character of the, of the scriptures, even if you read Isaiah and so on. If the scriptures are to be read canonically, um, we need to read them with in mind the single telos, the united aim uh, for which they've been given to us. And they have been given to us to bring us to God. They've been given for contemplatio, for contemplation of God. Um, nothing less satisfies. Not to say that a life of action is not important, politics are not important, that um, um, fighting injustice in certain circumstances is not important. I'm not saying any of those things, and, and you wouldn't catch me saying that, I hope, in the book. In the, in the yeah, no, no. But, but it is a pretty polemical um, uh, uh, counter-voice to what I think is, 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 is um, emphatic in much today's biblical scholarship, political readings of Paul, political readings of, of many of the scriptures. And to my mind, um, they cut off the, the supernatural horizon. They cut off the ultimate telos, ultimate purpose of our reading of scripture to see God. Wonderful. And, and as I'm, <laughs> I, again, I will say that I wish I had this book. I wish this was required reading for me in either my undergraduate studies uh, as a Bible uh, major or even as a master's student, just tremendously helpful. Um, uh, listeners, I highly recommend um, that you go out and get this book, um, Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew, especially those of you who want to go deeper in some of the you know theological and philosophical um, presuppositions through which we approach the scriptures. Those things are important for us to be aware of and have a firm grasp of. So Dr. Borsma, thank you so much uh, for this work. And I would love to have Scott McKnight on to talk about the things <laughs> that he wished theologians yes. knew from a biblical scholar's perspective. I know I don't know Scott personally. I've corresponded with him, but I, I know that he's a good man and I'm sure it's it's fruitful what he's what he's offered. It, it was a great conversation and we've actually done public exchange together on these books. And uh, he's, he's far more Christological than, than, than one might uh, think of when, when you're thinking, oh, there's two books, they must be in opposition to one another. No, actually, it's much more nuanced than that. And thank right. you for having me, having me on your podcast. Yeah, it's, it's a real blessing and a real honor. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. So those of you who joined us, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Hans Borsma, Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew. Uh, until next time, we're signing off with Seminary Unboxed.